This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their cultural experiences and influences, the art and artists who've inspired them, the books they read, and the music they listen to. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Doris Salcedo. Doris has created some of the most moving and profound experiences I've ever had in an art gallery. Her subjects are the victims of political violence and those that are left behind to grieve them. Her art is about the process of remembering and giving voice to the voiceless. Her works address these weighty themes, often through the most intimate and humdrum objects, clothing and domestic furniture, for instance, which are transformed poetically and with incredible subtlety. Doris was born in Bogota in Colombia in 1958 and still lives in the Colombian capital today. She did her BFA at the University of Bogota, Jorge Tadeo Lozano, where she was taught by another major Colombian artist, Beatriz Gonzalez. She then went to do her MA at New York University, an experience which was hugely important to her, as we'll hear shortly. From her earliest work, she settled on a spare but potent language, a response to personal testimony which initially reflected Colombia's civil war, conflict that lasted intermittently between 1948 and 2016. And right from the start, she gained accounts from victims of violence and those whose loved ones were disappeared. So in a group of early untitled works, she encased stacks of white shirts in plaster and pierced through them with steel rebar. These sculptures reflected the massacres of male workers at two banana plantations in northwestern Colombia in 1988. They're works that made me wince when I first saw them. The stacked shirts reflect order and give you a sense of multiple victims and that the victims were male. And then the steel bar reflects a cold brutality. Doris was keen that these sculptures should be read as metaphors rather than too literal, so the steel rebar doesn't pierce the shirts at the point where the heart would be, for instance. The first works I actually saw by Doris were from the Unland series made in 1998. The series was titled after a poem by Paul Celan, and we'll hear much more about him shortly. For the Unland works, Doris spoke to children whose parents had been murdered, and the series consists of three works which initially look like old, battered tables. In fact, each table consists of two tables which have been crudely joined, a form of disfigurement, and in fact, Doris has said that that is a metaphor for the emotional rupture caused by the victim's experience. Now, into these tables, Doris had drilled tiny holes through which she sewed hair and thread. It creates an extraordinary visual effect, and it forms an inevitable association between the table and a sort of fragile human body. Increasingly throughout her career, Doris has focused on public sculpture. In the work November 6th and 7th, which was made in 2002, for instance, on the 17th anniversary of the siege of the Palace of Justice in Bogotá by M19 guerrillas and the government's counter-attack to the siege, which left around 100 people dead. Over 53 hours, Doris lowered 280 wooden chairs from the roof of the palace, marking the moments at which the deaths occurred. Chairs also featured in another major public sculpture made for the Istanbul Biennial in 2003, in which 1,500 chairs were piled between two buildings as a reference to displacement as a result of war. And displacement and migration have come to have huge significance in Doris's recent major pieces. Her great work Shibboleth, the huge crack that ran the length of the concrete floor of Tate Modern's Turbine Hall, addressed the experience of borders, segregation of immigrants, and indeed the separation of non-Western artists from spaces of modern art in the West. Among her most complex works relating to migration was Palimpsest, in which the names of more than 300 refugees who have died in the Mediterranean or Aegean, escaping conflict and fleeing the Middle East and North Africa, are remembered on stone slabs. In an extraordinary feat of engineering, the names of those who had died after 2010 appeared through the stone slabs as if the stone was crying their names. Doris went to extraordinary lengths to create the effect where the water welled up like a tear. As I said, Doris goes to extraordinary lengths to talk to victims and those who grieve the dead and disappeared. And so I began our conversation by asking Doris why it was so important to gain these testimonies firsthand.
For me, the first step I take as an artist is to break radically with indifference. This means going to the place where I find the victims of violence, either in Colombia or outside Colombia. Their testimony is an essential part of the work. There will be no work without the testimony. So not only I witness, I'm a secondary witness of what they experience, but I'm always considering them as partners in my work. They, I'm always in a dialogue, not only while I'm actually receiving the interviews, but while I'm working, I'm dialoguing with them. They are my interlocutors, and my work is being made for them, specifically for them. And I'm wondering what sort of documentation you have of those meetings. Like, for instance, when you meet somebody face-to-face, will you literally record their voice? Or, is, or in a sense, do you work with the memories of that encounter? I think I work with the memory of the encounter. I never uh, record. I never take notes uh, while I'm with the person because I want to establish a different kind of a more direct relationship. I'm not a journalist. So what I'm trying to look is for something different. There are some, some words that are materials in the environment, their, their poverty, the actual building materials of their housing, the environment, the places they walk through. Uh, so that's what I'm looking for, something more, more delicate and more subtle that can give me not only the news of what happened to them, but how is this life experience, how is the experience of this historical event, how is a human being experience, experiencing a historical event. And that is very complex. And tell me about the, the translation then of those experiences into art and particularly a kind of spareness that runs right through your work. So right from those very early sculptures in the 1980s where they're with the shirts encased in plaster and the spikes going through them, there's a sort of directness but also a, a, a sort of an austerity about them. And why did you feel that was, a, that was an important thing to, an important gesture if you like? There are many relations uh, that I try to establish while I'm working. Of course, the testimony of the victim is the first one, but also the second one is the, the thinking of the perpetrator. The perpetrator has planned the attack. They have bought the arms. Somebody paid them to do that. There is, uh, there is always a rationality behind that, and that rationality is cold. There is certain coldness, extreme coldness, no certain extreme coldness when you're going to kill somebody or when you're going to display somebody or when you are enslaving a person or forcing them to work in unbearable conditions. There is a rationality, either political or economical, and the rationality is spare, is direct. And that's what I wanted to present. So it's not only the memory of the victim, but also the thinking of the perpetrator, what I'm trying to put into a work. So that's where the spurners come from. And then you've always found these terrifically evocative ways to convey the experience of the victims, haven't you? And, and, and often that is not immediately apparent when one confronts the work. I'm thinking about that wonderful sculpture in the Tate collection, the, the Unland sculpture, which has the hairs which are sewn in, which you, would, you really only see when you approach the work very close up. And that, that seems to me to be a core concern that you, you have to draw the visitor in to confront them with the full reality of the work. Yes. When I make a work, I'm like a schizophrenic person. I try to put my centre in the centre of the victim. And somehow I managed to do it. It's a strange, uh, not rational process. I wouldn't be able to describe it to you. But this happens to me because I'm so involved and I have learned so much from this experience that I try to be working from inside, from the heart of this person. At that point, I select the materials that are available and the pain that that person suffers. Then I start working with the most delicate because if you think of yourself, you are delicate, you're a a delicate being. Everything might hurt you or cold or even a sip of hot tea might burn you. So you're delicate with yourself. I wanted to preach that same level of vulnerability, of delicacy, of love and care into the work. So that's why I'm looking for these most fragile materials and these really absurd ways to communicate this vulnerability. 
Tell me about that absurdity, because one of the characteristics of your work is that it's extremely labour intensive. And I'm not just thinking about that, that major sculpture that you made recently, where the, where the stones that were beneath the viewer were sort of crying tears, but also things like the sculpture in which you sew together silk with, is it 20,000 needles? Yes. For instance, yes. you know, these incredibly labour intensive works. Why is that important, that labour? And you, you've referred to that as an absurd action. Well, I come from the Global South, and labor is being performed in the Global South. We work. We work for the Global North. All the goods that are being produced in our countries enrich the Global North. So uh, it is important for me to mark that I am producing works in the Global South, that we here, not only in Colombia, for example, there's not only violence or drug trafficking and all the sort of horrors that happen here, but there is also thought. And this thought has to analyze the conditions of life in general in the global south. So if we work so much and we are so poor, that has to be present in the work. On the other hand, I need this absurdity. It's what allows me to reach a level of beauty because the lost life I am referring to are lives that are beautiful that were complete, that were wonderful at some point. So I need to show that infinite aspect of those lives that have been destroyed so brutally and out of time. So it's both reaching beauty and showing the labour from the global south. When you made the step from making works for galleries into the public domain... Was that a dangerous moment in a way for your work? Because because obviously the, the intimacy within a gallery space is very difficult to replicate in much broader public spheres, right? Yes, of course I don't accomplish this, but I try to be a different person every time I make a work. So I stopped between one piece and another. I take uh, more than a year just to read and to research. So I know something that I didn't know before. And it's always... Of course, a terrifying moment. I always describe it as jumping from a 40-story building and jumping and hoping not to kill yourself. But, but the possibility is always there. The f- failure is always there until the very end of the piece. It is a terrifying moment. You're, you're right. And then in terms of the, this sort of domestic language, which you've developed from the most intimate scale to the grandest scale, there is this sort of residual language of clothing, for instance, and, and furniture. Tell me about your decision to use those most directly immediate things around us to convey these very, very complex and difficult ideas. Well, my work is about mourning. And when I interview mourners, they all keep objects uh, that remind them of the person that is missing, especially when I interview families who have uh, have uh, a member taken away, uh, disappeared by force. They keep everything, absolutely everything, every shoe, every sock, and sometimes the table is set with the hope that that person will at some at some point reappear. Uh, I have met mothers who have not left their home for more than twenty years because maybe their son will return. when the, if, So they have to be there and they have to be living in the same place and they, ha, they keep the same landline because maybe the person will call. So it is extraordinary to see the meaning of these objects for these families. They carry the clarity and the beauty of the life that is lost. And so for that reason, these objects uh, that are objects that, that most poor people can have are always present in my work. People can have a chair or they need a table. No matter how poor you are, you fabricate a table for yourself or you fabricate a chair for yourself. So these elements are universal. They, they talk to all of us, no matter where you're living or no matter where your social status is. They, 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 they make direct reference to a human life and to the absence of the human life. I wondered about, obviously, each project has an impetus and that can be in a different part of the world. But um, I'm really interested in the different levels of sort of local and global thematics within the work. So you make a piece which is about, for instance, refugees in Europe, but then it's a very translatable piece. And can you say, say something about how you go about doing that, but also maintaining a sort of level of specificity, but also making it a sort of universal language? Well, I think 
I think everything is the same in a way, because if I'm making a piece about experience, a massacre that happened in Colombia, that massacre will not differ a whole lot from the massacres we saw this week in the States. Uh, so the pain is similar, the destruction is similar, the motive might vary. And when you live in a country at war, like I do, displacement is evidently the most important aspect of the violence that takes place here. And so we have internal refugees. So when you see people, uh, people's experience uh, could be at the Cox Bazar uh, refugee camp in Bangladesh or in the border with uh, Mexico and the U.S. or displaced people in Colombia. They, they experience the same. The current uh, condition of advanced capitalism is kicking people out of their land. There are land grabs. Countries from the uh, global north are grabbing land from the global south, displacing people. So the experience might, be, might vary a little but at the end, it is the same thing. The brutality that, 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 that uh, all these people are experiencing uh, is similar. Whoever is living uh, Honduras or Salvador is living because they have to, because there is a climate crisis that is pushing them out. And the same thing is happening in sub-Saharan countries. So it is similar. The relation is similar. So let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. The first one is, who was the first artist whose work you loved? I have two early loves that I think remain the same for me. Uh, for me, Goya and Cezanne, they were my first and, and continue to be my greatest love. Uh, of course, living in Colombia, I had I had no access to to originals, so I saw them through reproductions, but I distinctly remember the first day I have access to seeing these works uh, for the originals for the first time. And those are days that I keep distinctly in my mind. When was that? Was that when you came to New York? Actually, it was in Europe when I saw Goya de Prado. was a transformative moment for me. Uh, it was an extraordinary moment for me. And then when I saw... Uh, at that time, Cezanne was, all, was still at the Louvre. And, and I remember my encounter with Cezanne. Uh, I was transfixed. I swear I entered into a painting. I don't know, I don't know how to explain that, but I, I felt I did that. I wanted to ask you about Goya anyway, because I've always wondered whether your work called November the 6th and 7th was in some ways a, a sort of abstracted homage to Goya's 2nd and 3rd of May. Yes, yes. Goya is present in all of my work. I mean, looking at, at, at horror, straight at, at the face of horror, is difficult. And I think Goya taught me how to do that and not to flinch when witnessing horrors of war, the horrors of political violence. What, what I was referring to at the beginning, I learned from Goya. Goya, in, 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 in that painting you're referring to, presents us simultaneously the victim and the perpetrator. And if you remember, the perpetrators are in a straight line, in a, in a rational straight line, uh, shooting at the victim, which, has, uh, which is full of emotion. And you can see uh, the empathy Goya uh, felt for that, uh, for that victim, for all the victims, but especially for the one who is in the, in the center. Uh, so he has uh, an empathy for the victim and, and this implacable, critical view of the perpetrators. And, and that's what I found extraordinary. What's interesting, I guess, is that I, mean, I know that you have emphasised that you wanted to make art about war, but in direct contrast to the history of images of war, if you like, because so much of the images of war is about the perpetrators and so little is directly about the victims. Is that right? Yes. It is very difficult to present images of, of, of violence, of political violence, because these images are the worst profanation, are obscene. And I don't think uh, obscenity uh, can be symbolized. Um, it, it, is, it is what it is and it cannot be transformed. So my, my goal when, when working is um, to create images that addresses violence, but without presenting violence. Violence cannot be represented because then it will be repeating violence. If you present a body that has been uh, cercenated or something horrible happened to it, if you copy that image, then you are 
represented, reenacting uh, violence in that image. So for that reason, I always try to avoid it, and that, and I'm very careful about that. That's that's I would say the main concern of my work. When one looks at the prints by Goya in the Disasters of War series, they genuinely appear to be the first of their kind to a certain degree in that level of empathy that you talked about. Will you literally go back and look at Goya again and again in order to kind of reinforce that kind of moral authority that he has? Yes, yes, absolutely. And the courage to do it. He transformed the way we look at war. Before that, war was uh, a triumph. Uh, it was always honouring this triumph, remembering the successes at war without taking into account the victim. So he showed us for the first time not for the first time, but he shows us the victim of war. We have seen victims, of course, in, in, in Christianity, in all the crucifixions. Uh, that's a representation of a victim. But uh, specifically at war, Goya did that. And that's why he is so essential to me. Cezanne is obviously not an easy... You know, I'm thinking about Cezanne. I love Cezanne too. But does Cezanne figure in terms of your work? Can you say that, that he has influenced your work at all? Yes, in a, in, a, in a very strange way. I adore Cezanne's uh, neutral, contained, strange beauty. Uh, and that, that containment is essential to me. It is very important to my work. I like in Cezanne the precision, the, the way of thinking. You can see each brushstroke is, is precise, is, it has an intention. It uh, denotes a clear gesture, a clear thinking, and that solidity. And that strange neutrality is something that is essential in my work. So I also go back to him a lot for that reason. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Oof, that's such a difficult question uh, because there are so many, so many contemporary artists. Every day I, I, I find a different war. I mean, I, I can think of, of Artu Jaffa's White Album, or one day I can be fascinated uh, listening to Theaster Gates, uh, or I remember the day I went to the Met to see the Roof Project uh, when uh, Inram Krishi had this, this extraordinary drawing, a delicate drawing that looked like blood all over. And I felt a huge empathy with that, with that work. I love Lynette Yadom Boake or uh, Injideka, Akunili, Crosby. Some days I could see a Julie Merer too painting of, of fire. And, 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 and of course, I have to think of that when you, when you read about the, the fires in, in, in California. I don't know, there are so many artists uh, going a little back. Uh, Paul Tech, I adore Paul Tech. Marcel Brothers. I, there are so many, the list to be <laughs> endless. I admire a lot of, a lot of artists. I, I enjoy seeing art and, and I have a lot of respect for many, 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 many artists. I didn't know where to put Joseph Boys. Oh, is Joseph Boys a historical artist? I don't know. Yes. He's obviously an essential figure for you. Let's talk about him within this field, however. So, so he's, he's, you know, he's sadly been dead for probably thirty years now. But yeah, but just a, a hugely important figure to you. Wasn't absolutely, it? absolutely. I when I was young, I had a lot of problems with sculpture, with uh, modernist sculpture. Now I came back to love it. But when I was young, I hated it. It was dead to me. It didn't say anything to me. I have come around that. <laughs> I have my sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, boys was a revelation for me. Was the possibility of finding work that was meaningful politically. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. He, he, he was essential. Seeing sculpture as something that had the possibility of giving shape to a society was an epiphany. So I, I studied him and copied him carefully when I was young. Was he also sort of quite important in terms of public sculpture in the sense that he created a kind of anti-monumentalism in his... They were, they were impressive statements, but they didn't seem oppressive. And I think that yeah. seems to me to be quite important in terms of the public sculpture. Yes, yes, yes. And the fact that he gave vitality to the spots he chose. He transformed them 
and 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 even even though they could be dead spots, he turned them back into life, and that to me was uh, was very very important. Of course, I don't have the the verbal ability, uh, nor the I don't know charisma he he had uh, in getting involved with people and 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 dialoguing with people. I'm more quiet. I need to be behind the scenes in a way. Uh, so it's, that's a huge difference. That is a fascinating aspect, isn't it? Because there are certain works of yours which have a kind of element of what might be called performance. I'm thinking particularly of 6th and 7th of November, which was this work where these chairs come down from the roof of, of the building. And therefore, mm. there's, a, there's a sort of you know, time and, and movement within that work. But you're, you're right, your, own, your very own personality is not present in the work, right? Yeah, yeah. In most, in most cases, it's not. Uh, that has changed. There is this uh, this term that has been coined by Mechtil Vidrich, uh, an art historian, which is performative monument. I love that. I love that term, and it's very precise into what I do. Uh, the piece you're referring, November six and seven, is the first one I made. But since then, I have gone several times to the main square of Bogota to these performances. And then I made a piece that, uh, even though it is not a performance in the final shape, it was made through uh, actions that I had with victims of rape. And that was when, when I cast 13,000 weapons uh, that had been given up by the Colombian guerrilla. So I, we hammered that for days with these victims of, of rape. This performative aspect of these monumental pieces, these outdoor pieces, has become essential in my work. Yeah, and, and, and that sense of process too, as you say, a sort of collaborative process, which ultimately leads to a final work. I mean, I guess one of the interesting things is for a lot of process art, the final part of that work is often insignificant or sort of a secondary element. Whereas for you, it seems to me that, that you've managed to achieve a balance between the process and the final object or exactly. installation or presentation to be kind of finely balanced so that they both have an importance. You know? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I'm always struggling to, to get an image, an image that is memorable. Because in a country like Colombia, where tragedies take place on a daily basis, I see my work as a possibility to give the public some tools to process those tragic events, to process mourning. So the image, what, whatever you remember, whatever you keep in your mind, is absolutely essential. So it is a way of transforming the conventional monument. that We had this fantasy that the traditional monument uh, will keep memory for us. It's like uh, we say, now, now you remember instead of me. And I don't want to do that. I want to make pieces that uh, are in the, on the move, that are passing by, that are never uh, set, but that leave a memory, an image that is memorable, that we can turn to and dignify those lives that were lost. In terms of in your studio, we've talked about how certain artists have been so important for you, but do you have any works by other artists pinned to the walls that you, you will turn to and look at, you know, as inspiration? I have two. One is Bruegel's uh, Triumph of Death, and the other one is Rembrandt's self-portrait with two circles. Ah. Those are, I, I adore, well, the, the, the triumph of death for obvious reasons. I think that violence is so primitive. It doesn't matter whether it's exerted nowadays by advanced capitalism or in the Middle Ages by whoever. It's the same. It's, it's, it's primal. It's brutal. And I think uh, in terms of the, of, the, of the Rembrandt, I have him everywhere in all my computers and this, the screen in, in the studio because it's such an honest presentation of an artist. It's a real artist. And, and that, I don't want to forget that we need to be absolutely honest with our work. So I, I adore that painting. It's grappling with the sort of uh, vulnerability of being an artist, isn't yeah. it, at that stage? Because yeah. there's that, yeah. yeah, as you say, there's the circles, which is a sort of a representation to a certain extent of his mastery. But it's also... It's almost like a questioning of art, isn't it? Yes, you know, it's, yes. what am I doing? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. There's no clear answer to what those circles mean. And yet he is there in a humble but grandiose way. I don't know, it's such an extraordinary representation of an artist. We can never forget that that's what it takes to be an artist. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. 
Cork Street in London has been the home of modern and contemporary art since the early 20th century and is where the UK careers of some of the greatest artists of recent times, artists like Francis Bacon, Max Ernst and Paul Clay, were launched. In 2019, the Pollen Estate doubled the amount of gallery space on the street as part of its commitment to the Cork Street Galleries Initiative, reigniting Cork Street's reputation for innovation and cementing its status as an internationally significant destination for art in the 21st century. Cork Street Galleries accepts proposals for permanent occupations as well as temporary residences. For more information, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Hmm. That's difficult because I, I live in Colombia, so we don't have like a, a whole lot of... It's not like I go around the corner like artists who live in London or in, in New York. Uh, when I when I can travel, El Prado is the museum that I absolutely adore. Of course, I, fi- I find Bruegel, Patinir, uh, Goya, uh, well, most of the artists, absolutely. All the moralist artists uh, like Bosch, and I identify with those moralist artists. But in Colombia nowadays, I, I'm going to talk about myself, uh, uh, is this piece I made with the with the arms that the guerrilla gave us gave, when they gave up war. And so with those arms, I made the floor of a museum. Uh, the name of the museum is Fragmentus, and I go to visit it a lot right now. Even though my piece is on the floor, my piece completely disappears when you have the work of a great artist. Right now, we have an exhibit of, of Francis Alice, all the pieces he made based on work. And so the dialogue between a war in the Middle East and war in Colombia is very important. So that's the place I'm visiting nowadays because, of course, I'm not traveling. You were talking about that idea of like memorializing the way that we have these monuments, which are in some way sort of fixed and somehow meant to be a space that people go to to mem- remember things. And I like this idea that that when people enter into that museum, they can, in a sense, they can choose not to engage with your work. Right. You, you give them that option. Yes. Yes, it is. It is. It is quite extraordinary because I always try to put myself behind and I never achieve that. And with this piece, I did. I disappear. A great artist places his or her work on top of mine and I'm gone. It is absolutely perfect. I always try to depersonalize uh, my work and, and let the victims talk and allow other voices to be listened. But I never achieve, achieve it completely. So um, this is what I've been looking for for many, many years. Which cultural experience changed the way that you see the world? Well, seeing Goya was a transformative Absolutely transformative. Uh, I, f- I felt it. I felt it in my brain. I felt something happen in my brain that day. I wasn't completely sane. I think it was a temporary loss of reason. But it happened to me during that first day at the Prado. I was almost hallucinating. And then going to Egypt to see the pyramids and going to Mexico to see uh, pyramids, they showed me a different relation with materials that entirely changed my approach to art. It was not so much modernism, but it was more older cultures. I wanted to talk about literature. So which writers or poets do you turn to the most? I go back, of course, to Celan and, and Osip Mandersham. But lately, uh, like in the past two years, I've been intensely looking for uh, artists, who, who poets who are thinking or are migrants themselves. So I'm um, fascinated by Banu Kapil, Ocean Wong, Barzan Shrine. I mean, there are contemporary, very young writers, Carla Cornejo Villavicencio, who is a dreamer, who is, who is an undocumented person. Ocean Wong, uh, a refugee from Vietnam. I love to think that they don't need anybody to represent them. The refugees and migrants are capable of representing themselves in the most powerful manner, uh, with the more powerful poetry, I, contemporary poetry that I find nowadays. So I'm really into that right now. That's really fascinating, because it's true of, of artists, isn't it, as well? There are a number of artists in Europe, for instance, who have come over to Europe seeking asylum and are now embedded in European culture and contributing 
fantastically to those cultures and in a way that this is a sort of urgent thing which I know that galleries throughout the world are trying to um, tell us about you know and it because because so much of the language as you've referred to in your work around refugees around asylum seekers is profoundly dehumanizing isn't it yes yes so I think that the only real equalizer in life is intelligence I don't believe that there the, the, the could be a, a uh, an armed struggle to reach power and find equality. I don't think so. I think intelligence is the only thing that can uh, put a brown person like me as an equal to a, to a white human being. Uh, so the fact that this this po- that poetry is elevating these refugees to the highest level, it's, it's so essential. In a way, it's the same thing that Celan did. I mean, Celan managed to be the best poet in German language. And, and crack German in a way uh, with these Yiddish overtones. Uh, so I think it's, it, it is the same. It is the same, the same thing what these, what these young poets are achieving nowadays. Let's talk a bit more about Celan because my first encounter with your work was with the Unland works in, in a small show in the old Tate Gallery in, at the end of the 90s. Yeah. And... Those works refer to Ceylon in two ways, don't they? On the one hand, Unland is a sort of a, a play on his sort of neologisms. And then the actual titles of the work, like Audible and In the Mouth, are a direct quote from him. Why was it important in those particular works to quote from Ceylon? I should say that another transformative experience for me was encountering Ceylon. Encountering a poet who's able to convey horror and beauty simultaneously, whose mind is so precise that is, uh, is if, a, if a comma is missing, the meaning will be lost. And being a survivor and, and having the courage to go back to, to German, that at that time was unthinkable for, for Jewish, uh, and in, during the post-war, was unthinkable for Jewish uh, writers. Every image exploded to me in my mind. Every single line convey an infinite amount of images, of feelings, of thoughts uh, that I was trying to convey in those pieces. So I was on daily basis reading uh, always before I start working and usually after, afterwards as well. I needed that kind of of pain to keep me doing this, this absurd stitching through wood with hair. It's such an absurd gesture. I needed Celan to guide me to that and, and to show me that, that poetry is, is, is absurd. And as he says in the Meridian, absurdity is what uh, speaks of the, of the sovereignty of, of the human being. That's what really honors a human life, our ability to do things that are beyond it. So he guided me through those, in the making of those pieces. I wondered about your own trauma. I mean, you talk about the, the grieving that you're experiencing in, in, in making work. And, and, you know, for that piece, Unland, you were speaking to children who had lost parents, right, whose parents had been murdered or, dis- or, or disappeared. So, you know, it, it must be fairly traumatic going through those experiences yourself. Can you say something about, about your own experience of that? I guess it is traumatic, but I don't allow myself to think it is. Because as we have been talking today, I tried to erase myself. Of course, it is painful. I remember I was, I was uh, interviewing a, a girl who was always wearing the same dress. I went to the orphanage. She had witnessed the killing of her mother. And when I went to the orphanage, she was wearing the same dress. And, th- and the dress was obviously too small for her. And one morning, I was taking an, uh, an early flight, so I went to the orphanage like at 5, a, 5 a.m. to leave uh, a little doll for her. And she was already up and washing the dress because she had to wear it every day. Then she told me that her mother had, had made that dress for her, and that was the only thing she had. Uh, so, of course, those, those experiences are extremely painful and traumatic, and I, 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 I tend to somatize. I mean, I, I get sick in all sorts of ways. I don't have a great, great health. But whatever is happening to that girl is stronger than what is happening to me. So I have to put that pain first. And mine is secondary. And at the same time, I try to make a a decent living for myself, a, a, a warm, loving environment to compensate a little. I wanted to also ask you about Dostoevsky, because I know that you've quoted 
approvingly quoted Dostoevsky in the past. And I wondered if reading Dostoevsky has sort of, again, given you a sort of sense of a perspective about how to create art from darkness, if you like. Yes, yes. I think the brutality of some passages helped me to understand something that is difficult when you live in the, in the, in the global south. You think that you are in a horrible country and, and the problems are local and it's because only because of, of, of lack of intelligence and stupidity and corruption and so on and so forth that this is happening. There are many, many things that I take from literature that are directly into my work. So would you read a novel or read poetry and sort of make a note of that in some way in order that you might employ that in your work? Yeah. Uh, for example, um, the, the piece you mentioned with the 20,000 needles, that piece I, I was reading Beloved, Toni Morrison Beloved, and the appearance of the ghost and the image of the, of the white dress is in direct relation with what I'm making. And of course, philosophers have been tremendously important to you, haven't they? And a whole number of them. I mean, again, is it too obvious to say that, for instance, you read Hannah Arendt and that informs the work directly? Is it is in a way, is, her, is there a sort of just a spirit of her work and other philosophers in a way that there's a sort of background to the work? Yes, yes. I, I mean, I think uh, I always uh, think of myself of a person who knows nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, when you when you look at my work, each piece is radically different from the previous one. So so I'm always beginning at a tabula rasa. The, I, I don't I don't accumulate knowledge. Uh, so being ignorant, lost, disoriented at the beginning of each piece, I need to hold on to something. And and philosophy uh, is done is, is has has saved my life many times. I don't know. There are so many Levinas, uh, Derrida, Hannah Arendt that you mentioned, Agamben, uh, Jean Luc Nancy, very important for me. I continuously go back to them, and and I I honestly think that they tell me how to do the work. I I get these ideas from them. I mean, we haven't mentioned Beatriz González yet, but yeah. your, your teacher in Colombia, is it right that effectively she gave you those kind of philosophical tools in a way for your work before you had actually reached your sort of visual language? Oh, absolutely. I was 17 years old when I started studying with her. Uh, so I had, I, had, I had nothing at that time. And she taught me that art did not come from imagination, but from reality. She keeps the most extraordinary archives, uh, she has always done that. And those archives, I believe, are as important as her work. So she taught me that one has to study, that you have to study, you have to read, you have to research, you have to be aware of what is happening around you. And that's an invaluable lesson. And besides the fact that she's a great painter and that she has a very careful eye on the reality of Colombia and of the global south in general. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot to learn from her. Let's talk about music. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I need music that is tense and difficult. So I, I like uh, contemporary classical music. I listen a lot to Kronos Quartet and, and, and many of the composers uh, they work with. Uh, Balenesco Quartet is also important for me. Uh, so I need, I need music that is difficult, that is tense, that puts me in that mood when I'm working that is outside uh, a normal, domestic, uh, peaceful stage. I need, I need to prepare myself into tension. That's really fascinating because I think, as I've been talking to people for this podcast, there's a really interesting different uses of music. In some ways, uh, some people need it to be the background. Some people need it as inspiration or to sort of um, as, as to, to get them into a particular mood or a particular mode, you know. And so, and that's a, that's a very interesting idea. That, but like, so I guess there will be, there's only a very very particular kind of music that can actually do that for you yeah. because too much too much information or too much romanticism and it tips it over into a different into a different feeling yeah 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 yeah. obviously i listen to a lot of requiems from many contemporary composers i schnicke requiem is something that stays with me a lot uh, arbo part uh, vladimir martinov also accompanies me a lot uh, uh, i need this it's sort of 
strange, minimalist, contained, tense music, I guess, what I need to get into this specific tension that I need when I'm working. I don't need to be relaxed. I need to be hyper aware. One of the things that when I was researching for this interview, I was sort of, um, I was trying to imagine the kind of music that you might be interested in. And, I, and one of the things that really struck me as I was as I was thinking about it is that your work is some of the most silent work I know. You know, and sometimes for some reason, some art can just have a kind of audio element to it, even if it may not have sound, if you know what I mean. It, it, it can translate into a, into a kind of music. Whereas with your work, there is that very contemplative silence. And it seems to me that that's something you work hard to achieve, right? Yes. Uh, the first thing is to silence myself in order to allow other voices to be heard. So, uh, so silence is absolutely essential. I also think that silence is essential for the viewer. Otherwise, there is this noise or disturbance or excess expression. I'll be interfering with the viewer. And I think the, the voices that I'm trying to place in my work, the experiences I'm trying that are at the heart of the work, need to connect with all these memories of pain that are embedded in the memories of the viewers, no matter where you come from. Every human being has memories of, of physical and mental pain. So that is what, what I need to connect to. But without silence, nothing will be possible. Levinas says that silence is the prophecy of language. Uh, so it, it's it's something that might have language might occur in the future, but at the very moment is silence. Also, silence is important because without silence, there will be no victims. In order for a person to become a victim, to be forced into the condition of the victim, it means that that person cannot talk. The victim cannot say, "I'm sorry, please don't kill me." That nobody will listen. So silence is part of the loneliness of the victim. So that's why silence is an essential, essential experience in, in terms of violence, of political violence, and of course in the representation of it. What other media influence your work? Mm, I read a lot of newspapers. I read three or four newspapers a day. So I guess that the printed press is important to me. That's interesting. I mean, one of the things I'm conscious of is that your work is a sort of it, it translates across languages, and you've and you've presented it in in different languages to a certain degree. So, mm. is it important to you to read newspapers from different parts of the world as well? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I only speak Spanish and and English, so I cannot read as much as I wish I could. Uh, but I read the Guardian every day. I read the New York Times, El País from Madrid, uh, local. Colombian papers. I think it's essential to know what's happening in the world because people ask me, how do, how do you find that out? Well, it's in the press. <laughs> you know, it's in the press. All the horrors that are trying to address in my work are just there for everybody to see. So what that proves is that, 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 that most people have chosen to be ignorant, to be ignorant about the suffering of other human beings because that's, that makes their life more comfortable. It's also informative in terms of what isn't there, in terms of like, for instance, with Palimpsest, you went out and sought out the names of people that you would not find in the press or, or yeah. not not widely in, in one place. I mean, I know that you actually used the used newspapers actually to to sort of um, clarify for certain the names of those that had died, didn't you? Wow. But in a way, you were adding to news reports in in that work yes. by saying here is a body of names of people who have died as a result of trying yeah. to flee from war-torn countries etc. Yeah that was uh, researching those names was extremely difficult at that time when I was doing that research there was Syrian press and Turkish press was was freer than it is nowadays so we were looking for these names in press that was not only European press uh, or American press, but I had a very hard time because the European Union uh, refused to give me the list of names they had. There were several uh, NGOs that refused to give the names. And, and so I had to do the re this really difficult task of visiting cemeteries uh, where little pieces of cardboard were uh, stuck to a to a pile of dirt and then checking that with press from different parts of the world. It was a, extremely difficult. So each name had to be found at least twice in order to be present in the work. So no praise, no, no name is made up. They are all verified.
Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Drawing, sketching. I, I think sketching is more precise than drawing. I, I don't draw, I sketch. Uh, I sketch a lot. That's the way I, I connect to everything. What I have read, what I'm listening to, what I have uh, researched, the interviews I have made. Everything comes into those sketches and from those sketches come the work. I'm, I'm trying to think. I've seen many of your shows, but I don't think I've ever seen a sketch by you. I don't show them. I don't show them. <laughs> <laughs> they are the most private aspect of my life. Uh, I don't show them at all. So in a sense, they're private, but they do help you develop your ideas and, and work them through in, in ways that ultimately lead to the final installation or object or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I always sketch, but I'm, I, 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 I have very poor eyesight. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm legally blind. Um, so the more, the more I, I get into this, the more I need the sketches, because before I used to work by myself, doing everything alone. And as I lose my eyesight, I need assistance, I need help. When I was young, the pieces uh, came uh, through material, through the use of materials, and now they came through sketches. So I, I think uh, almost completely the piece uh, in those sketches. That's what I present to my assistants, and from then we start work with materials. So the, the process has changed. Is there any way we can convince you to show your sketches at some point? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Curators, you have a challenge set by Doris. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Um, uh, if you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Oh, the Rembrandt with two circles. No, no doubt. The self-portrait of Rembrandt. Yeah, it's an extraordinary work. That would be in, in, a contender for me too, definitely. And lastly, what is art for? I work from here. I have a specific perspective. And from the Global South, art is a way of allowing people to express what violence impels them to do. Violence is a way of silencing. Violence destroys language. So when somebody has killed a person you loved, you don't express that uh, with words, but you express it, you cry, you weep. There are, there are other, other sounds that come that are not languages. So for me, art is the way of structuring language that can express the experience of those who have not been able to express themselves. Doris, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much. You can read about many of the projects that we've discussed on this podcast at theartnewspaper.com, where we'll also bring you news of any forthcoming projects. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcasts are Julia Mihauska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Benthel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Doris Salcedo. Join us on Friday for The Week in Art and on Wednesday next week for the next episode of this podcast, A Brush With, Doho Sa. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com.